What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to the Mishmash Podcast. Today, my guest is my good friend Anya Vojvodic, lecturer in the Social Science Department at CUNY LaGuardia Community College. She's also an instructor of political science courses at NYU and Rutgers University. Anya, thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast today. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, It's so nice to reconnect with you after all these years. Again, I'm honored, and thank you. Thanks. It's it's kind of scary. Heather and I were discussing this last night, just how many years it's been. Uh, I think the last time we saw each other in person was actually our CUNY Honors College graduation back in 2005. It was a long time ago, for sure. (laughs) Yes. It was a long time ago, yeah. I remember you and I were... Correct me if I'm wrong. Weren't we in the same orientation group um, at at orientation? Because I have some pictures of us that I can eventually send to you. <laughs> we were, yeah. Uh, it's so so. It's so funny that you say that. So I always like to begin these types of interviews with just a little background information for my listeners in terms of you know how uh, the guests and I know each other. And I was going through some of those same photos. It would be really funny if they were the exact same photos because I have one, I believe it's you, me, and then Christine. Do you remember Christine from Queens College? Of course I do, yes. So Christine, I think there was someone else in the photo, Um, but I I had those as well. And I couldn't believe that. It's funny. So just for background purposes, so Anya and I are members of the inaugural, what's now called the Macaulay Honors College. Um, the class of 2005. And it began as a charter program with our graduating high school class in 2001. And it's so wild to me to think that, you know, we graduated high school in June of 2001. It must have been a week or two later that we had that orientation at the Graduate Center. Yes. I remember correctly. That's right. And it just felt like, I know for me personally, I felt like I grew up so much in between, you know, wearing the cap and gown back in Madison in Brooklyn. And when I took the the train and the bus into the city for that orientation, it was, it was a pretty wild time too. Yeah, it definitely was. It was, I remember the orientation being very like exciting and, and joyous. And I remember connecting with a lot of people. Um, and I think, uh, Matt, you know, it's been a few years, so maybe you can confirm this, but we also went, didn't we go through like an outward bound? Well, Do you remember we were some, I don't remember where that was, but it, we were definitely in the woods somewhere doing was, like team building. I, ju- yeah. I just drove past the exit for that. It was in Hope, New Jersey or Blairstown. It was either Hope or Blairstown, New Jersey. Um, and I just drove there past there with my son uh, heading out to uh, a resort in, in Pennsylvania the other day. And I, it's funny because I remember Outward Bound. So again, just for, for background purposes. So in an effort to compete with, I guess, Ivy League institutions, but at a much more affordable rate, if you want to call it that, CUNY decided to, to start this program to try to draw more, I guess, uh, higher academic performing students uh, to stay within the city, to stay within CUNY, instead of going towards Harvard and Yale and Brown and, and Princeton. And part of that program, in terms of what they were offering, was sort of a package deal. If I remember correctly, it was the the full tuition scholarship. It was the laptop, which was a really big deal at the time. We had Mm -hmm. the expense account that they gave us, study abroad opportunities, among other things. The one that I remember the most, which I'm connecting back to our uh, orientation experience, was the cultural passport. That was something that was a really big deal for them. And what I remember, well, we can discuss that in, in greater detail in a moment. But what I remember about the orientation week was we we had... We had a get together 
I think this was like the first official official event was at the Graduate Center. And that was really more of like a mixer where we got to meet each other. We got to do some things within the Graduate Center. And then I believe it was late August. It was a full week. It was almost like a boot camp sort of training thing where I just remember doing one activity after another. So one day we went to this great program called Outward Bound which I guess they do a lot of like corporate and uh, other like team building gatherings. Yeah. And so we were able to go and do that. I think we went to see a play. We did something in in Manhattan because I remember getting home at like three or four o'clock in the morning after a really long night. Yeah. I think it was uh, Madge. I I think it was the play Proof. Yes. Um, And I'm, yeah. Yes. Which was great, which was such a good play. It's a, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure Matt can explain this, but it's, basically a play about uh, a young woman who's uh, brilliant at math. I think she's actually a doctoral student in mathematics somewhere. And her she's dealing with some some personal issues or mental health issues. And it's just it's just a wonderful and, and poignant play. And I, I will never and I think the playwright was was there after and he was answering some of our questions. Yes. I remember, I think it was my friend Annie from Queens College. I wanted, I don't know if he was signing the playbills. I I just remember he was definitely there after that performance. uh, Yeah. Because we got something, maybe something signed or whatever. But I agree. It was one of the watershed moments for me college-wise, again, where I felt like I really grew up because I had never really experienced anything like that before in terms of, of theater. And it was a great sort of entryway, I guess, to what we were going to experience as Macaulay scholars. Um, That's right. Yeah. And so, yeah, so one of the elements of that program that was great was that cultural passport. And that essentially gave us access to so many of the museums and cultural institutions throughout Manhattan. If I remember it correctly, the pitch for the program itself, but that aspect of it too, was to use the city itself as a campus. And so we had what was called a cross-campus project at the time. I'm not sure if, if they still do it or, or what, you know, what the current situation is with that. But it was a great opportunity at the time to connect, I think it was Hunter, City, Brooklyn, Queens, and Baruch. I don't know if maybe Lehman too. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think Lehman and CSI were added after the fact. Um, mm-hmm. But the point was we were spread out. We had our home campuses, but then we also had this sub-program within it where we would have these um, different projects that we would have to work on. So in within the first two years of the program, we had four cross-campus, cor- uh, no, not, not cross-campus courses, cross-campus projects within the IDC courses. And each semester we studied something different. Uh, I know for us at Baruch, the third one was science. I don't know what it was like in Queens, but I'm, I'm assuming we were all essentially in the same types of courses uh, yeah. at, at our campuses, right? Yeah, I think uh, the third, so that the third semester would have been the first semester of our sophomore year, right? Correct. And I, I, I do remember taking some related like science courses in that semester. Um, I, I think the semester before that, you just jogged my memory, I completed a project on, um, you might like this, Matt, on the West Forks playground um, oh, wow. in, in Greenwich Village. Yeah, and I was... Even then I had like, I noticed that there weren't many women playing, but I found one woman playing and I interviewed her. It was like, an, I don't know, it's like a emerging or beginner's ethnography of a basketball court, but 
uh, when I think about it now, I find it really actually kind of, I would do that now. I'm, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm a political scientist, but it's such a, it was a good idea. I'm not trying to brag, but I, I'm, I'm impressed that I, at that point, I, I thought of something like that. But I always like, you know, you know, I like sports. You know, I like basketball and I, particularly I love the story of New York City basketball. And I was just fascinated by that theme. And that's that's what the Honors College kind of facilitated for me, researching that kind of theme. Yeah, no, I, that that sounds first of all, for, for those who don't know, New York is a mecca of basketball, which I, unfortunately that that term gets ascribed to Madison Square Garden a little too often. But for the city itself, mm -hmm. there are pockets, whether it's Rucker Park or the West Fourth Cage, like there are different places that are renowned for the competition. And you're right, like growing up where I was in Brooklyn, we had plenty of, of female basketball players. We had a pretty solid again, just localized um, Catholic schools that had really great teams. I know I was fortunate enough to play with some really, really great, um, great players. One of them, I think, wound up playing for the University of Maine or, or some, somewhere in New England. And wow. it was great for me because coming into the city, like I never really thought much of that discrepancy. But when you get to those places, especially in Manhattan, like it is so male dominated and it's not because of a lack of talent or lack of players. I think it's just sort of, I'd be interested in, in that sort of study myself. Um, <laughs> Which is which yeah, is me great. Too. <laughs> no, and, and it was it really was a great idea. That's that's it's a humble brag. That's okay. It's it. I love that kind of thinking, and that's that's also what I loved about the honors college. Right? Was it sort of fostered? It, they gave us a lot of freedom to conduct those types of explorations on our own. And I think that obviously not every student that we went to school with had that same sort of thirst for knowledge or love of learning, but there were enough folks that were like that, that I think it's sort of, we, we sort of propelled each other forward, especially through those cross-campus projects and things like that. And it really was great for me personally to be able to have that motivation that I never really had before, because I think all of us came from, at least in our high school settings, you know, a situation where we were towards the top of the class or, you know, it, it was just a different dynamic coming into mm -hmm. that program where all of a sudden we were either equals or at least in my case, you know, definitely not the smartest person in the room. So it was nice to, you know, encounter folks like yourself and, and so many of our peers that made me want to learn more or feel okay with saying, you know, like, hey, you know what, <laughs> I want to conduct some park anthropology, I think uh, is, is a great way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's um, awesome. So I'm curious, though, because of I, I feel like you have always had that curious mind. Is yeah. that what propelled you towards where you are now? I, I would love to, to discuss where you are currently in your studies and uh, and research. Um, but if you want to maybe help fill in the gaps between when we when we graduated in 2005 and now, uh, I, I think that'd be really interesting to hear. Yeah, sure. So I didn't. Uh, so a lot of people pursue, well, not a lot of people, some people pursue academia pretty much uh, right after college. But I decided not to do that because I think that I had definitely some some growing to do personally. And so I worked a few years for the Legal Aid Society because I initially, after college, I, I wasn't actually, I should clarify that, I wasn't thinking about being a professor. I wanted to be a lawyer, like a lot of <laughs> ambitious college students. Um, and so I found a job opening at the Legal Aid Society, which is a nonprofit organization in New York City that provides free legal services for those who can't afford them. Oh, wow. Uh, so they 
Yeah, so they, they provide uh, criminal and civil representation in, in various uh, aspects of law. And they're actually a great advocacy group also. They're very often <laughs> reprimanding the city or, or, or suing the city for legitimate reasons. Um, and they've won uh, substantial lawsuits over the years, especially when the, when the city does something wrong, in particular, obviously. And so I worked for legal aid for a for about four years, and then I had a boss at legal aid who actually recommended or encouraged me to not go to law school because, in in his opinion, uh, there were too many lawyers <laughs> in the world, and he said, uh, "Anya, you may end up, uh, you know, at a law firm." you know, putting in very uh, long hours, and I'm not sure you'd be happy. And he said, why don't you do something like international relations? And I was so stunned by that, because I didn't think that he knew me that well. But I guess I must have given him the impression that I would like something like that, maybe in my in my brief conversations with him, this was like three or four months into knowing him. Oh, wow. And he just said, yeah, he just said, yeah, you would be really good at an international relations. And so that kind of, you know, when something, somebody says something to you, it doesn't maybe happen that often with me, but it's, it strikes a chord within you. And then you start thinking about it. Of course, I, it's not such a stretch for me, uh, Matt, because I did major in political science. Uh, I'm from the former Yugoslavia where, you know, international relations sort of was happening in practice all the time, right? It was Yugoslavia unfortunately fell apart and, you know, the whole world was sort of watching and some people were intervening. And so I had a working knowledge of that field just as a, just as a kind of observer. And so I ended up enrolling in a master's degree initially at New York University at the Center for Global Affairs. And this was like 2009. And then I really, within that program, I connected with uh, lo and behold, the theme of international relations or global affairs. And I knew that that was something I wanted to do. I wanted to do something within that field going forward. Uh, and so that was kind of pivotal for me, just going into that master's program in 2009. So then I completed it in, in 2011. And then I w started uh, specializing or becoming more interested in, in women's rights or women's issues globally. Uh, and then I applied for a uh, Fulbright scholarship to Serbia. Um, I think that was actually the first year that Fulbright reopened their scholarships uh, to Serbia just because of the sanctions and right. everything that was. In, yeah. Uh, and so I ended up eventually getting that Fulbright and going to Serbia for about a year to do some academic research on on gender quotas. Uh, which gender quotas are basically tools that uh, countries or political parties use to increase the number of women in politics, usually parliaments or congresses. Um, and so Serbia had adopted a gender quota in 2004, which it was amending, which it had reformed in 2011. And I went to Serbia to basically document that and research it further. And so after I, I came back, it was a wonderful experience. And I decided, actually, my, my father was, was the one who suggested to me that I should go into education. And so I said, let me, let me give uh, a PhD a try, a PhD application. And so um, I applied and 
at some point I had heard that that Rutgers University had one of the only programs for women in politics research in the country. I think it's probably the only program. Oh, wow. And so I, yeah. And so I applied there and I got in. This was 2014. And then I ended up spending about five and a half, almost six years completing my PhD research. Yes, it is always a long time. Um, and then I graduated, I got my PhD, I defended my dissertation in, in April of 2020, right around oh my the goodness. start of the, yeah, the start of the COVID pandemic. It wasn't so linear. I'm making it sound linear. I mean, I definitely had some back and forth about what I wanted to do and some doubts, but that's how it ended up going. Basically, after Macaulay, I did the legal aid, uh, you know, I, I worked at legal aid for a while and then I sort of switched gears into the global affairs and I really haven't looked back since. And like, like you said at the intro, I'm now now in the education field. I'm a lecturer at LaGuardia. Yeah. That's an amazing story. And I agree. <clears throat> I, I don't know that it's necessarily linear sounding, but I know what you mean. So to, to sort of try to make it linear or at least chronological in terms of what you said, one of the things about the legal background that you you know started out in that I think is great, it, it, I'm just thinking of Eastern Europe, and I have a friend, Andre, who's a photographer from Romania, and we've had mm -hmm. a number of conversations about his frustrations as a Romanian citizen due to the corruption within the government and how, you know, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in terms of how things are run and how things are actually, you know, portrayed in the media and everything. And what's something you said earlier about um, something striking a chord with you, it just happened now when you, when you mentioned, you know, how many of those cases were won against the city, right? How many times the, the city was sued. Yeah. And yeah. it makes me appreciative, I guess, of the fact that we live in a place where you actually can sue a city, maybe the yeah. biggest city in the world, and legitimately win and, and hopefully enact some kind of change because there are so many places around the world where that's not the case. And I don't, I think that's, I, I try not to get on the soapbox too often, but one of the things that frustrates me as not just a New Yorker, but I guess as, a, as an American citizen overall is I think it's too easy for folks here, especially if you're not from a, a large metropolis, to kind of stay myopic, you know, and, and not really consider yourself a citizen of the world more so than just, you know, a, a United States citizen. And right. I think it's to most people's detriment because there's so much that you can learn and so, so much that you can use as a reflection on yourself here by learning about these other places and the struggles that go on there. Like, I think a lot of people like to complain, you know, about whatever it happens to be about our culture and our society. And, and <laughs> granted, there is a lot that, you know, is negative or things that you could complain about. But when you learn about, you know, some of these places, even Romania and other spots in Eastern Europe versus, you know, Africa and just other places where it's not even just corruption, where it's a, a daily struggle to get water, to just to, to live a life of, forget about freedom, just to live your life. It helps you to appreciate what you have more, I think, you know, and, especially you, you referenced Yugoslavia, that was such a tumultuous time. And yeah. for it to have played out on the world stage that it did, I would imagine that's extremely, it, it had to have been really difficult because of, I associate sort of a, a nationalistic pride, not like jingoistic, but like uh, I, most folks who I know who are from that region take mm -hmm. pride in their heritage and where they're from. Um, even if mm -hmm. they were born here, but their family emigrated from, you know, Serbia, Yugoslavia, Russia, Ukraine, yeah. anywhere like that, there is an element of of national pride. 
And yeah, I just feel like that must have been, uh, again, a tumultuous time for folks from that region. Yeah, definitely it was. I mean, even just observing it as, well, I uh, left uh, Yugoslavia with my family in 1987. So I was uh, three years old. I hadn't turned four yet. And even, so I wasn't there. Obviously, I wasn't in the region most of the time when when things were, when, when really bad things were happening. But even as a as a, a spectator, sp- specifically as a child, I mean, I probably you know d- deal with a level of uh, I or I have dealt with a level of trauma based on you know just watching the the effects of what happened there. You know, just seeing a, a once beautiful and actually most of the time harmonious country disintegrate in such a way is is truly a tragedy. Um, and, it, 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 and I think you, you hit the nail on the head in the sense that it has, in terms of my, my personal journey, it has affected it a lot. And that's probably why I've ended up in the field that I've ended up in, uh, because I was directly, directly and indirectly affected by the war there. And, and especially in terms of just like thinking, I'm, I admire you because you you are, you know, someone who was born here, who grew up here, but you have such a worldly perspective. For me, it's understandable that I have a multicultural perspective, given that I was born in another country, but I'm always in awe of people who grew up here or were born here and have that kind of, that not only, not only do you, Matt, uh, you know, like kind of have that perspective, I think you also are, are a world citizen because you, you're able to compare different, different cultures. Right. And in, in terms of, and I think that's, that's always a good thing because you, you, you progress intellectually when you do that, you amass more knowledge, um, but you also can situate your own context or, or what you're going through in a, in a, in broader terms all as well. Uh, thank you. I mean, I'm floored to hear that. <laughs> and, and I appreciate that very much because that's something that, wasn't always necessarily there. So I grew up in an interesting place and and it's not something I've spoken about frequently on the podcast or in general, but some people, you know, are aware. So my neighborhood in Brooklyn, so you grew up in Queens, correct? Yes. Flushing, Queens. Right. So, so Flushing is as much a melting pot as where I grew up in Brooklyn is not. (laughs) So for for us, we were, the way I think of, of Gerritsen Beach in Brooklyn is it's sort of, a triumvirate, basically, because it's very much Brooklyn and New York. But because we were surrounded by water on three sides, and there were several marinas, there was a lot of boat activity, it had almost like a New Englandish sort of feel, you know, like for, for the coast, not Cape Cod, but you know, something to that effect. But the it, it's a very much a blue collar town. And so the ideals that I grew up around were much more Midwestern, you know, in, in terms of just the purviews that people had. And in the same way that, you know, like you can have a family that's lived in the same town in Kansas for, you know, seven generations. It was the same where I grew up. I mean, my family's one of easily a half dozen that I can think of who have had at least one member of the family living there since the early 1900s. Um, and in a wow. city like New York, that's not a typical thing, as I've come to learn, right, the, the further out I've ventured. But I credit that worldliness, if, if you can even call it that, 
to my parents who were far more open-minded than a lot of the people that we grew up with. And that, that was kind of what I was getting at before is it's very easy to exist within a bubble, even in a city of what, 8 million. It's amazing how easily you can sort of carve out your own safe space, if you want to think of it that way, and just inhabit that, you know? And I never yeah. liked that. Like I was always curious about other people and other situations. And it wasn't until I got to high school where I started to meet, like growing up before we got to high school, like in the neighborhood, I would say diversity meant you were of Irish and Italian descent, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's just how yeah. it sort of worked out. But then when I got to, to high school, I met so many kids who had escaped Russia, uh, Ukraine, uh, Armenia, Albania, all these places that, you know, I knew of maybe couldn't have even pointed to on a map, but really didn't know anything about. And through speaking with them and just like seeing how appreciative they were of where they were made me kind of like reflect and rethink like, wow, maybe I have it much better than I thought. You know, it's it's kind of difficult to, to complain. Yeah. I found it difficult to complain about the vending machine running out of Cool Ranch Doritos to someone who, yeah. you know, was literally leaving their house in the middle of the night because there was, you know, gunfire and, and they were trying to escape. It's just... Again, the the further you branch out, I think the better you become as a person. And uh, and yeah. I appreciate that that recognition for that because it is something that I think benefits everybody. But it's a, an element that I especially loved about being uh, a student at Baruch where we had like, I think it was 109 languages spoken on campus when we were there, when Heather and mm-hmm. I were students. And then to have yeah. met so many people from from all over, which is great. And you, you again, something you, you said re- really resonated with me. I just finished Neil Gaiman's masterclass on writing. And one of the bits of advice that he had for aspiring writers is to write as much as you can, but also to live as much as you can. And I think that's especially younger writers that, you know, they get out of high school and they think, well, I just want to jump right into it and write the, you know, the next big thing, the, the next great novel. If you don't have anything to say, it's really difficult for people to connect with that. And I think for your journey, the fact that it wasn't linear, that you took those sort of detours, they were all detours that were still progressing you towards where you are now. And I believe you're probably better off for them. At least your students Mm -hmm. probably are, you know, just because of the accrual of the knowledge, the experience, the changes in perspective that you've had. I mean, you've always been such a brilliant, open-minded, caring person. But <laughs> but being able to have just, again, those perspectives, I'm, I'm really curious about what that time in Serbia was like for you. And, you know, was it eye opening? What did yeah. you learn that maybe you didn't know going in in terms of the, the political side of things? No, that's, that's a great question. So I lived in, in Belgrade uh, between 2011, 2012, like that academic year. And I was I was on a Fulbright. And I actually really, really liked it, but I could, I mean, I could tell the differences between Serbia and the United States, and you pointed to some of them, right? I think in Serbia, especially at that point, there were a lot of economic challenges that people faced, right? It's a little better now. Economically, it's more developed, but in 2011, people don't make as much money, near as much money as they should, and near as much money as people here make. Um, and so they they sometimes struggle. Um, and also, uh, one thing that they struggle with in Serbia is like the legacy of the Yugoslav Wars, because Serbs and uh, Serbia as a state or 
at that point, Yugoslavia, I mean, they, th that group of people, and I think it was unfair, was, was blamed for the entire, like, the entire uh, dismantling of Yugoslavia. Certainly, there were a lot of bad things that happened on the Serbian side, but Serbs weren't alone in that. But anyway, but the point is that Serbian people sort of kind of carry a burden with them related to that war. And that I think makes their lives a little bit harder um, in terms of just figuring out just like uh, daily life, daily life things like, you know, how to how to make it through the day and just like sort of broader things like, you know, when when they travel, I've heard people say like they're somewhat embarrassed to say where they're from or their visa issues. And so there are a lot of complicated legacies related to the war in, in Serbia. And I definitely noticed that when I was there. And so as a Serbian American, it was sometimes hard to position myself. Some people would sort of tell me their opinions about American foreign policy. And obviously I would listen and sometimes I would agree, but there's also things I would disagree about. And so it, but all in all, like the experience in Serbia, as you pointed out, was was eye opening and it was a great experience. I mean, through the Fulbright program really did their best to help us uh, adjust to the new setting, to help us kind of navigate the new culture, although I speak the language. And so it was easier for me to communicate with people and to adjust. And I have some family there, too. So in 2011, just quickly, uh, Serbia was the ruling party there uh, was called uh, Demokratska Stranka or Democratic Party, and its president was Boris Tadic. But a very pivotal thing happened while I was there in Serbia, uh, that Demokratska Stranka, which is a kind of center-left pro-EU party, uh, lost parliamentary and presidential elections to its very sort of powerful rival, the SNS party in Serbia, the Serbian Progressive Party, um, which is still in power. And so, and the, definitely the Serbian Progressive Party is more populist, more center-right. Um, and so I, I witnessed a, 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 polit a, a great political change in Serbia and it was interesting to say, to say the least. But overall, I, I got to re reconnect with the culture that I, that I somewhat knew and um, overall, it was a it was a good experience, and it actually informed some of my some of my future research. So that that's the other part that was good about it. Yeah, and yeah. now if I remember correctly from um, what I was reading about your research, were you also investigating the presence or lack thereof of female executives? Was it in the EU or in Eastern Europe? It was um, in Eastern Europe. And so it, it's interesting. Um, I have a working paper on that, which I'm trying to edit a little bit so that I could submit it to an academic journal. But it's and that's really impressive that you remember that. But anyway, basically, it's kind of the opposite because Eastern Europe has a higher percentage or it has had a higher percentage of women executives than many other regions in the world. So there have been more women presidents and prime ministers in Eastern Europe than in many regions of the world. And so I, in my working paper, I'm trying to figure out why that's the case. And basically, one of my arguments is that some people don't realize this, but the, the socialist legacy of that, that area of the world actually empowered women in certain aspects, especially in terms of education and even professionally. 
And so in this paper, I'm making the argument that, that there is a, let's say, enough professional and enough educated women in those countries where the next step, if they're interested, it's not so hard for them to get get into that world of politics, right? So that is a paper I'm working on. Oh, that's, that's so fascinating. I didn't realize that there was, I thought, I would assume that the discrepancy went in the other direction. So that's interesting yeah. to to hear. And and I mean, you raised the, the perfect point, right? One of the issues, at least in the United States, I can't speak to, to anywhere else, historically, was the withholding of educational opportunities for women, for people of color, for, for groups who were not a part of the, you know, centralized source of power, which was typically conservative white males. And you're starting to see, I mean, it's not perfect now by any means, but that was right. a tool that was essentially used, you know, for discrimination purposes and to withhold certain benefits, right, in, in terms of that, uh, not just right. social structure, but power structure. I think it, it was really what it came down to more than anything else. And so I'm always interested to see when that structure is sort of subverted or at least altered in other places around the world, because there aren't many cultures that I can think of where women are in a position of, forget about being the power source, if you will, There, there's, you know, just a struggle for equality in so many arenas. And so yeah. do, do you feel like in terms of, I don't want to say the, the socialist region, but but the area that I guess in terms it's of It's often Europe. called post-communist, post-communist. Okay. Yeah. Right. So in the post-communist yeah, realm, yeah. sure. Do, do you feel like education now at least has, is, is there more parity there or is it something that is wielded the way it used to be wielded here as a, as a means of, you know, sort of holding back? Yeah, so that's a great question. So during socialism, women were obviously allowed to get an education and an advanced education. So there was, in general, in most countries, there was no like ban against that, obviously. And so women did end up attaining high levels of education. And I mean, if you look at some of the like the global gender gap report by the World Economic Forum, if you look at how some Eastern European countries are are ranked or evaluated in terms of education, many of them get very high scores. And that is a legacy of, of socialism, um, because according to socialist thinking, women were just as important as men in this proletariat struggle, to use their terms, right? Mm -hmm. They were important. They were important as workers. They were important for the revolutions that were happening. And so their talent and their potential was, was tapped in many of those, uh, were tapped in many of those countries. But you, you raised the point about education now. I think it's still good, like the indicators point out. Um, and I think in many Eastern European countries that I know of, education is, higher education is also basically free. And so uh, there's no real class or socioeconomic status impediment related to that either. And so I think in Serbia, more women get doctorates than men. There's some kind of statistic that I read. Oh, wow a few years ago. Yeah. And so there's that example. I'm, I'm sure other countries have other other examples. Um, but I do want to say, and I and I know that you know this, but maybe maybe just to clarify from my end, it's the, the situation for women, like you pointed out, isn't perfect anywhere, even in Iceland and in the Scandinavian countries. Women still struggle. Women still face challenges, especially maybe in the private realm. Um, you know, with things, unfortunate things like domestic violence and, um, you know, the kind of inequitable 
uh, sharing of, you know, household duties or, uh, or even caring of children, right? So I just want to point out that I, I don't want to say that, that it's, it's definitely far from perfect for women in Eastern Europe. But there are some positive legacies of the past that I would argue that that make life a little bit easier for them, especially if you compare compare to certain countries that maybe don't have that legacy of gender equality. Right. Um, and still still struggle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and it's an important point to make. Um, and, you know, I think of it as with most things, it's like a spectrum. Right. So even here in the United States, like. If I remember correctly, I think it was World War Two, where, you know, initially, again, to, to put it crudely, you know, women's place was in the kitchen, right? They were supposed to be the the house tenders and the child rearers. And that was the extent of it until all hands were were needed on deck. Right. And then so opportunities exactly. for the first time out of necessity, sadly, I, I mean, it sucks to say that, but that's what it was. Then all of a sudden, certain arenas were opened. And, you know, again, it's not like then everything was great afterwards, but there are those moments where, you know, it's like just sort of prying the door open a little bit, you know, and it's frustrating because even now in the United States, I I was curious, you know, Heather being in finance, I'm always interested in terms of female leadership positions and, and, you know, at the executive level and how that's treated because, the it, it even now it's still different it's not perfectly equitable you know and and i c- can't really think of many professions even here where it is you know i mean there are certain ones where it skews i believe more towards the female i had a guest on recently she was the chief of clinical pathology over in um south nassau um and we were discussing how within certain aspects of the medical fields, it's skewed almost drastically more towards female candidates than male candidates. But I mean, again, it's not many arenas where that's the case. And that's here. So that's why I'm curious in terms of places like, you know, Eastern Europe or the Middle East or Africa, Eastern Asia, even where it's just so, so skewed, you know, towards the male side that it just not mm-hmm. that it feels impossible, but it's just I don't know, it's, it's disheartening for me to think of the fact that we are where we are societally as a globe. And there's just still so many areas that don't have that equality or anything approaching it. Yeah, exactly. I think you're absolutely right. And I, and I fear that we're actually regressing a little bit um, in terms of uh, gender equality, like what's going on sadly and tragically in Afghanistan with the Taliban coming back, you mentioned the Middle East, um, what's going on with some women leaders, perhaps understandably, you know, sort of resigning, but when, when women leaders, when, when prominent women leaders around the globe resign, um, definitely I understand that, that's their personal choice, but I think it, it sends a message or it feeds into this narrative that women are not capable of doing the job of an executive, right, or prime minister or president. And I get a little bit nervous about that, uh, you know. So, but, but you're right. I mean, I, we were actually as a globe doing better in some gender equality indicators. And I think now there's a bit of a, a kind of a plateau. I think we're hitting a plateau. And I think a part of this is because of this, if I may, kind of more conserv- conservative rhetoric appealing to people around the globe, right? Um, you know, you know, this, this framing of gender equality as being an attack on the family. I think that resonates with some people. And I think 
we need to, those of us working in this field need to dispel that notion because there's nothing, no one wants to attack the nuclear family. I mean, this is not my agenda and this is not the agenda of anyone I know. This is not the point of what we're trying to do. <laughs> we're trying to help women and we're trying to help other people progress, right? And attain full citizenship or get the, the human rights that they deserve or, yeah. Right. So, and, you know, obviously there aren't many theocracies throughout the world now where that's the mm -hmm, predominant, mm -hmm. you know, political discourse. Um, but you mentioned the nuclear family, like there's a legacy there, right? That's sort of inextricably linked to uh, monotheistic religions. And it's an important component of society. And it sort of has become, again, that the nucleus, right? In terms of it being a nuclear family. And yeah, it's an interesting avenue for certain political agendas to, to use it as a target, right? And I guess to, to harken back to our discussion earlier, you mentioned that you're into sports. So looking at something like the WNBA, which is in the last two or three years, I think has really broadened its scope in terms of its appeal, in terms of how many people are aware of it and going to the games. And so many of the players are mothers or mothers of multiple children. And of all the, you know, it, it's tough enough. I, I think that was one of the weak early arguments about why women shouldn't do certain jobs, right? It's because, well, you know, they're, they're going to get pregnant and then they're not going to be able to perform their duties or they're going to want to stay home with the kids. And obviously that's just a cop out. And I mean, what better example of that than sports, right? Where there's a physical component to it, to performing your job. And so many of these amazing players are demonstrating that you can do both, right? You can have a nuclear family, you can have kids and still, you know, perform at a high level in whatever job you have. And so I just think it's kind of cool just to see that coming on in that area. And hopefully yeah. that's something that, you know, resonates a little further than just, you know, the sports fandom, I guess. Yeah, I think you're right. I think these examples through sports or through other areas or sectors is, I think it's beginning, these examples are beginning to change people's minds because it's like, very persuasive proof, like you said, of, of what's possible, of what women can do, right? You know, even in, like you said, the WNBA, I think the perception of the WNBA is changing among open-minded people. I think people who have these set ideas that the WNBA is inferior to the NBA, why should I watch it? I think it's going to be harder to change some extreme mentalities like that. But I think open-minded people are beginning to uh, watch the NBA, uh, WNBA, enjoy it, and also appreciate it. And it's beginning to, to change a little bit of, of the national conversation about women's sports, um, which, is, which is good. Right. And it's frustrating for me as a father of a daughter who is a, a young athlete herself to see situations like the women's national soccer team where, where they were at with the, the pay inequality, where that was a unique circumstance because they were so far ahead of the men's national team in terms of their performance, their, their just success in general, but the revenue was not being <laughs> distributed equally, right? I mean, it was kind of absurd. Right. I feel like tennis is probably yeah. a little bit better in that regard, but even still, like it's, it's, it's not where it should be, in my opinion. And the problem is exactly what you said, right? The closed-mindedness. And it's frustrating. <laughs> Somebody mentioned this once where they said locks locks are meant to keep honest men honest or something like that, right? And it's true that like 
if you're going to be able to have your mind changed, you're probably open-minded to begin with, right? But the people who are yeah. so inured in their thinking, they don't want to have their minds changed. You know, they want to be told how to think, or they want to at least hide behind some sort of ism as a, a way of maybe engaging in thought processes or actions that they know were wrong. And, you know, they, they use that as a defense mechanism. Exactly, exactly. They, uh, I, like you said, they identify with a certain ideology or like you said, an ism or a series of ideas and then they're staunch supporters of that. And, you know, it's like a pride thing. Like if they change their mind, right. they'll lose their sense of identity or something. Yeah, it, it, right. Exactly. Well, and that's something that fascinates me from a psychological standpoint is how identities are formed, how people, you know, make those affiliations for themselves and how how connected it is to ego. I mean, I know this, this is somewhat cynical, right? But just psycho-sociologically speaking, I feel like if the world were to end and there were two people left, that those two people, in theory, should be able to, you know, live side by side and, and maybe even work together and help each other. But were a third person to enter, I just feel like, biologically speaking, we are hardwired to create an otherness situation, right? That, like, somehow one of them will pair off with another one and leave, you know, the, the third person to themselves. And I know, again, that's cynical, but I, I've just, I don't know, I, I see it on the macroscopic scales, but even microscopically, right? Like my kids just went back to school yesterday. Uh, and so it's just sort of top of mind, right? The way cliques are formed and, you know, just how all of that stuff plays out in school. It it happens in politics. It happens in the corporate world. Like it, it's not something that's yeah. relegated to uh, to the playground, I think, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, when you unfortunately, when I sometimes my my cousins have have kids, and when I go to Montenegro, I I observe you know just children on the beach, and I see how they how they play, and often it can be quite contentious. Some of them are mean, Um, so I I understand. I, I like you. I'm I'm very hesitant to say it's it's human nature. Um, but maybe maybe there's definitely something to it. Um, the way the way maybe generations have been brought up and the things that we replicate and the things that we needed to do over time as humans to survive. The problem is that the, the world is thankfully changing in in some aspects and and hopefully more, I guess how should I call them more progressive people or people who, you know, envision better futures can push people to to be better versions of themselves too, right? I think it also starts with with leaderships and the examples people in leadership positions set. Sometimes that's enough for people to overcome some of some of the way that some of the way that they were they were maybe raised or whatever it is. So yeah. right, and I know some of I remember when I was teaching at like health professions high school in Gramercy or working with like Baruch College Campus High School, like you could tell there were certain kids who had rough home lives or or traumatic childhoods, and you know some of those kids would act out, and you know it was one of those things where you'd say, oh, that's understandable. But then there were others who had it even worse and who had that intrinsic motivation, right? The ambition to. Uh, not just escape this situation, but to just put themselves on a completely new path. And I think it's interesting to think about, um, you know, you mentioned the the children playing, right? How sometimes they can be mean. It's really interesting watching little kids play because 
they do have those moments, right, where, you know, they're best friends and then somebody takes a toy that they want and now they're worst enemies, right? But they always manage somehow to, to sort it out for themselves. Yeah, and yeah. And that, that's why, like, I, I never think of things... I try to avoid absolutes wherever I can, right? And so nothing in my yeah. mind is purely innate or purely environmental. It's always, you know, some some degree of, of both. And I think it's, I don't know, again, I don't want to be cynical, but it's interesting to me to see how the internet and the global connectivity has opened up so many doors for people who want to open them, open them and explore what's behind them. But I also think it's made it even easier for the people who don't to just sort of I don't know, stay in their caves, <laughs> as it were, right? Whether it's the internet yeah. trolls or whoever. Yeah. And I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, it was one of those things where people would just sort of shrug it off. But I think you see when enough of those people enough and enough of those caves sort of make a network within those caves, right? Now it becomes a problem yeah. because it becomes that echo chamber and, and whatnot. So it's fascinating to me to think about in another, another 15 or 20 years, where we'll be globally speaking as a society, especially with something like um, AI, right? Because when the internet really started to to come around, did you use AOL back in the day, by the way? Or Instant yes, Messenger? I did. Right? Yes. <laughs> we were talking about that recently. <laughs> right. And so, you know, for us, for our generation, it was fun. It was a great time to, you know, I, I know for me, I used it as a primary tool for connecting with friends after school or on the weekend or whatever. But there were a lot of people who were terrified about, oh, the internet, it's going to be the end of, you know, not the end of the world, but, you know, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And, you know, it's all this power is going to be consolidated. And that's not really how it played out. And I just kind of hear the same arguments coming up with artificial intelligence. And I think it's just another sort of new thing that we don't know how it's going to play out. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, and unfortunately, again, I think it's just going to be the same situation that the the progressive open-minded folks will use it as a tool to further themselves. And the ones who aren't will find a way to, you know, leverage it for their own means. I mean, again, not, not to be cynical, right? But that's sort of human nature. We're, some folks are innately skewed towards selfishness, you know? as a product of yeah. ge genetics or their environments or again, a combination of both, I guess. That's right. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think it is, it's a combination of, of nature and nurture and just you, you never know. I mean, you, you can, uh, I don't want to be cynical either, but you can have someone who's, who's related to you, even a sibling who's very, very different than you, right? Even though you come from the same genetic pool, uh, maybe you have different genes than he or she has, or you were, just certain you had different life experiences that made you different people. I mean, it's, it's really like, this is why uh, social science or even like some aspects of biology are so like hard to really pinpoint because like you said, there's so many complicated factors involved. Like humans are so complicated <laughs> and uh, political, I mean, politicians are complicated. Sometimes they seem very simple and silly, but they can be complicated too. <laughs> right. And all of it, to me, it all boils down to communication, right? And that's thinking back to our college experience. That's something that I think really benefited us because we were encouraged. They, we were given so many forums to explore ourselves, right, in terms of our own intellects and building our worldviews collectively, individually. And I think, at least for me personally, that helped me to be more comfortable in not just speaking with people, right, but also being more reflective. And I think that's something that's lacking, at least here in the United States. There's not a lot of reflection and and ownership and accountability with things. People, 
get, your feelings get hurt very easily. And it, I don't know, I guess it forces them to shut down. And there's not as much dialogue as there is just, you know, two sides yelling at each other, whether, whether it's politically or just locally, socially, you know what I mean? Like, I think just societally speaking, things won't improve really until we improve that aspect of it, the communication, I think. Do, do you notice that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, you, you uh, When you mentioned AOL, it made me think about our status or our gener- generational marker as as millennials, right? Because uh, when when I turned 15, 16, the sort of, the internet was basically coming up. I mean, it was I still had to dial in, but I definitely used it. And I, like you said, it was so amazing to me. I looked at it as a wonderful invention, as a, a wonderful discovery. Um, but what's going on now with just all of us taking the internet for granted and many people using the internet just for social media, not really for discovering things, it's taken on a different tone. And I sometimes feel bad for uh, younger people, like for, I mean, on one level for like Gen Z, even though they're, I think they're quite a vociferous and promising generation. I also think that the way they're interacting with social media isn't always ideal because I can tell when social media doesn't please me, right? And I have that kind of childhood and I have that background where I can say, well, I'm just going to shut it off. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to read a book, right? But I think Gen Z and even younger generations, for some of them, that has become a, a big part of their world, like TikTok, Instagram, and those platforms aren't always ideal for mental health and for self-esteem. And so, and like you said, this spills over into the political world and, uh, you know, politics on, on Twitter and maybe even Facebook is particularly a few years ago had become so incredibly polarized. I mean, it was out of control and that worries me about actually America, right? It worries me that people are going to once again, go into these extreme camps as we're seeing. And I don't, Unless, like you said, unless we come up with a proactive solution on how to deal with that, it might actually become uncontrollable. And, you know, families are fighting, you know, people within families are of different ideologies. They're fighting with each other. It's like the fabric of American society has been torn a bit. Yeah. And it's sad. Oh, and I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's something that I think at the onset I feel like people just assumed, well, this is Facebook and it'll stay on Facebook. But then at the family barbecue, all of a sudden, you know, there it wasn't even that there were arguments that were breaking out, right? Because again, the communication is at issue. There, those comments and things that were inflaming the situation on Facebook don't get discussed in person. Instead, you know, they're it's like factionalized, right? And so you have the the one group that believes A stays together over here and the group that believes in B is over on the other side. And I agree, like what scares me as a parent is trying to help my kids forge their own identities with what I consider like meaningful, valuable experiences because social media really is just an outlet. It's no different in my mind than AOL, right? AOL, you had your profile page, you used Instant Messenger to chat with people. That was, you know, that was it. It was just, an exp- for me, it was an expression of myself. It wasn't who I was. And I think a lot of people, especially in Gen Z, they just sort of default to 
relying on their, I don't even want to call them avatars, but, you know, their, their different accounts, whether it's on Snapchat or whatever the, uh, the platform happens to be, that's who they think they are. And so they ha- they're just so tied up in it. It's difficult to, you know, sort of pigeonhole an entire generation, right? So obviously that's not every kid, but I definitely see a prevalence there. And it really started Mm -hmm. with not even, I can't even blame our group. I mean, folks, our parents' age, I think really, once Facebook opened up to everybody, that was when I saw that sort of seismic shift where, I don't know, people just, I guess for all the access that we have, it can still be a very lonely experience to, to be a member of society, right? And I think yeah. people look for solace in that virtual realm, but there's none, there, there's just no nutritive value in terms of yeah. like the psychology. That's how I think of it. So in terms in terms of the, uh, the short-term future, uh, I know you mentioned having uh, a paper that you're hoping to get picked up by an academic journal. Do you have any other projects or uh, avenues or directions that you're going to pursue academically or professionally? Uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks for the question, Matt. These questions have been great. Uh, so I am in the process of finalizing a book proposal. Uh, and uh, my, my proposed book will discuss women's political representation in Central and Eastern Europe, something you and I touched on today. And so the book would basically be an analysis of the progress or lack thereof of women's political representation in that region. And so I would look at various aspects of that concept, including, you know, asking, are there actually more women in politics than there used to be in in Eastern Europe? What has been the effect of of more women in politics in Eastern Europe, right? Both in terms of legislation and in terms of something called symbolic representation, basically the idea that women in politics can inspire other women to run, right? That's called the symbolic effect. Um, So like it's, I, I guess, the the example of Hillary Clinton in the American context may make sense here. I'm sure Hillary Clinton has inspired many young women, or, or even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other women that just by virtue of their example have inspired women to, to engage politically, right? So I'm trying to assess whether or not that's happened in the Eastern European context. And that's basically what, what my book idea is about. Uh, and so I hope to publish it within the next few years, but we'll see, you know, I, I'm pretty busy, <laughs> so right. we'll see you. I'll try to make time for it. Yeah. That sounds good. And that's something I'll definitely keep an eye out for. Uh, and in terms of representation, uh, I think you do all of your, your fellow Macaulay, uh, scholars proud with everything that you've done professionally and just who you are in general. I know this has been such a thrill for me to be able to speak to you today. And I very much appreciate knowing how busy you are that you were willing to, uh, to share some of your time with me and my listeners. So this was a lot of fun, just such a great discussion. Thank you so much for, for coming on today. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for inviting me for thinking of me. I'm honored. It's always a pleasure. You are a, uh, a world and uh, upstanding citizen. So thank you so much. I try to be. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, it's tough, right? Because I feel like, uh, you know, there's a uh, professional envy sometimes looking at what our fellow, uh, our peers have done, but I, it's still a group that I'm honored to be a part of, even if I'm not contributing to quite the same, uh, the, the same scale as everyone else. But you know what? That's okay. You're, you're just modest. You're just modest. That's what it is. But thank you so much, uh, Anya. I really appreciate the time. And I can't wait to check out the book. Good luck with that and everything else that you have coming up. 
Thank you, Matt. Good luck with this wonderful podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone listening wherever and whenever you are.